This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, bringing you the rest of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on your DAB radio, on the smart speaker, the app, or at times.radio. There's no escape at all. But every day here on the podcast, we bring you our big thing, uh, which is coming up in just a moment. We take a look at the economics of the Tory leadership contest. Uh, but first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel, and on a Monday, it must be Libby Rachie. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time on a Monday where we catch up with Libby Perris. Morning, Libby. Morning. And Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Uh, nice to have you both with us. Um, so, uh, were you were you watching last night? Uh, and and uh, how how difficult is it going to be for the toy party to move on from all this mudslinging, Rachel? Oh, I certainly was. I was gripped. I think it's Total Wipeout is the name of that um, game show, isn't it? <laughs> they were all kind of where, where that game where you have to sort of you basically get knocked off into the water every five minutes. But I think um, it's absolutely extraordinary. If the a party leadership contest is a chance for a party to show off its talents to the wider electorate, there's a sort of one of the few moments where normal voters might be watching politics. Um, and it's their chance to show the best, you know, brightest and best. And what the Tories seem to be doing is just tearing, um, you know, tearing flesh out of each other, whacking each other over the head, um, exposing all the really profound divisions in their party. Uh, it's as Tom Tuchinart said, a knife fight in a phone box. And also showing their kind of detachment from the wider electorate. So the issues that they're talking about, you know, let's go for more tax cuts, let's go for a smaller state. Um, let's, you know, not focus on climate change. All of those things are, are the opposite of where the voters are. So they're wooing this tiny proportion of the voters, 150,000 people, 0.3% of the over 18 electorate. Um, with and, and it's just highlighting the kind of growing detachment between the Tory party and the voters. And Libby, it was the thing that, that struck me last night um, uh, watching it was... Um, is it the, the Tory party, the biggest thing that's going, to co- co- that's going to be a problem for the Tory party at the next election is the fact they will have been in power for 14 years. And what they're basically deciding is, are they going to have one more go 
at possibly appealing to the wider public and, you know, the, the great British electorate, to, with the, at least the idea of winning? Or are they just going to go down in a blaze of glory with a sort of uh, clutching a comfort blanket of uh, the sort of things that the that, that Tory party members uh, might like, but the public aren't that keen on? I thought the two who were worth bothering with, uh, who are Rishi Sunak and Kemi Badenoch, the, to me, the two who are worth bothering with, I thought they were both... I thought they did have a vision. I mean, his is largely a sort of managerial, economic, let's get this right vision. And he's the only one who really talked about targeting help, uh, you know, cost of living help onto the poorest. He's the only one who really sort of talked about targeting. And Kemi is interesting because I think she's such a social conservative. Um, so I thought I thought both of those were interesting to listen to. And you know what? I don't mind the business of them tearing lumps out of each other. You know, I hope that there is argument, that there is dissent in, in cabinets and inside parties. You know, I hope there is proper discussion. And Mrs Thatcher used to say she liked people who upped and argued with her. Obviously, she then handbagged them, but... Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I thought that was I thought that was sort of okay. I thought there were one or two slightly sort of personal things. I thought Rishi rather let himself down with his do you regret being a liberal or a whatever the hell it was um, most. But I, I just uh, I I don't I, I think I think Rachel's being very sensitive about this. I I think it's okay. <laughs> I I want to hear them arguing. I want them out there. And I don't I think in the end. I mean we were sort of sitting there, three of us in the family, just sort of saying actually yeah we could see yes yes he can be prime minister. You know, and she can be Chancellor, or she can be Prime Minister, and he can be Chancellor, and so on. Which of them would you have as Home Secretary if you wanted any of them? We we were sort of imagining ahead that they'd form some kind of cabinet. Whether they can win an election, I don't know. A lot of that just depends on Keir Starmer and Labour and how convincing they can be. But I I don't think they. I think a bit of the tearing lumps is quite useful. <laughs> uh, well, uh, they they clearly don't. Uh, Steve Swinford uh, from the Times is reporting that both Richard Sinek and Liz Truss are unlikely to do the Sky News debate on Tuesday night. Apparently they want to focus on the MPs' hustings in the run-up to the final vote on Wednesday. Uh, there was also concern about how brutal they were. Apparently at the end of uh, the one on Friday on Channel 4, uh, Richard Sinat turned to Liz Truss and asked, why are we doing this? And they both questioned the point <laughs> of the debates amid concerns about where they will leave the Conservative Party in the long term. I mean, I suppose they the thing got, is... they then really went for each other even more last yeah, night, Yeah, exactly. They? If they were I mean, concerned they were... about that on Friday, then they didn't yeah. show it last night, yeah. Mm. They were much more But personal. I think the important thing to remember is we are, we are not their electorate. I mean, they are addressing Tory MPs right now and then they will be electing, uh, you know, talking to the, the wider party. It's not about us, you know, uh, not but yet. Problem, it will be later at the election. I think... I think that's a problem for them, that they're highlighting all the things that are not relevant to us or, are not, you know, not relevant to the wider electorate and, and, and are alienating not... to the wider electorate. And Do, it's quite hard to how see much how they of could... the Honestly, chaps, how many of the wider electorate do you think are actually bothering to watch this stuff? I think they'll wait till there's a leader and then listen at the election. I think people were out having barbecues and ignoring yes, it last night. Surely not. Surely not. <laughs> I don't think we've. Uh, I don't think we've yet around. seen the, uh, the the listing figures uh, for the um, for the for the debates. I was just having a look. No, nobody yet seems to have. Uh, bothered even publishing the viewing for the, the the viewing figures for Friday night I suppose the um the, the the question to some extent will be and if actually Liz Truss and uh, Rishi Sunak are sort of rolling their eyes at each other and oh dear, 
maybe that means that actually they they are doing it, you know, slightly with their fingers crossed behind their backs, and maybe they can come together and uh, sort yeah, of work of together in the future. There's quite there are quite big divides though on particularly on tax and and spending. It's quite hard to see how they could sit around a cabinet table, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, on tax and spending, which is the fundamental issue over the next three years before between now and the election, two years. But Liz Truss, um, Liz Truss will be out, won't she? She'll be nowhere. Do you think so? Do you, think? you don't think she'll play a role in anyone's cabinet? No. No, I, I really, I think she's shown herself as as a terrific lightweight in all this, and I, I don't see her. Uh, Kemi now, Kemi now, that's she is something. She really is going to be something. You could see her forming an alliance with Rishi Sunak for sure. Um, yeah, well, I tried to make this and... point earlier, but I spoke to Rachel McLean, who's a supporter of Kemi's, and I said there doesn't seem on the key like tax and spend questions there doesn't seem to be that much uh, difference between them, and maybe that's because. Mm-hmm. You know, it's we assume anyway that, that she'll uh, she won't make it to the final two, and actually, you know, she can align with with Rishi Sunak later. I suppose actually, one of the things you were saying about the fact that this is about the Conservative Party members rather than the general public. Uh, only there's this poll of the Times. Only four percent of Conservative Party members think that hitting the target of net zero emissions by 2050 is one of the top three priorities for the next Tory leader. Members said the most pressing concern was winning the next election, followed by controlling immigration and helping families with the cost of living. I wonder, uh, Libby, if uh, the weather this week might slightly change some people's minds. It might do, yes. I mean, I thought it was it was interesting that, um, uh, you know, that nobody ever kind of uh, addresses the very small elephant in the room, which is the smallness of Britain. I mean, it's going to be about our influence as much as what we do ourselves. Um, on the China question, it would have been interesting if anybody had popped up and said, yeah, you know, we should trade with China, you know, but we should also be bearing down on their enormous emissions and making reduction of some kind of condition of friendly trading and so on you know we should be that big influence in the world over over net zero you know because frankly what we use in britain is fairly unremarkable compared to america you know compared to to china compared to russia so but nobody ever says that you know we all act as if it was just all down to us and if we all turned it down turned it down a bit we'd be fine so i think i think it's interesting how that doesn't really it doesn't come up in political debate yet it might do more after these few days heat waves especially if we get more of the heat waves because apparently there's a thing we might get something called a heat dome where it goes on through the summer but uh, we don't know that yet uh, what do you think, uh, Rachel? I think it's another example of where the leadership contenders are trying so hard to woo first the MPs and then the party members that they're in danger of losing touch with reality, in fact. So, you know, if you ever needed a reminder of the importance of the net zero target, then this week is it. But already, Suella Braverman said she'd suspend it. The others are kind of iffy about either having it or or how you get there. They've been sort of competing to dump the green levies uh, on energy bills. Uh, and there's this sense of actually you know, you have to think about what matters for the country uh, as well as winning this leadership election. Um, I noticed that none of the candidates attended a briefing by um, Sir Patrick Vallance on climate change. So it's uh, there is this, um, they seem to be trying to burnish their anti-green credentials, either 
you know, literally or as as far as they can because they think that's what the party members want. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. Um, just finally, let's. Uh, I like it when, when these things go full, full circle. Something that we did on the show last week talking about museums has inspired your column today, Libby. Well, yes, there were so many wonderful replies to, um, you know, about oddball museums of pencils and dog collars and all the rest of it that I wanted to muse on this a bit. And I talked to great Admiral Roy Clare, who used to run one of the big New Zealand museums and run the National Maritime Museum. It's about acknowledging the reality of objects. We, we live in a world of fake news and reputation management and this didn't happen and that didn't happen and so on. And actually, it's good sometimes to have solid objects and as Roy Clare pointed out it's rather good for children in museums to see and sometimes engage with things which are solid you know wind handles and pull ropes and handle objects and so on because they spend so much time sort of swiping on screen and I think museums are the most wonderful solace and corrective to the kind of world that, that we live in online so much of the time so I just wanted to celebrate that really. It is, it is terrific. There were there were so many that people sent in, and you've got even even more in there: pencils, dog collars, spices, typewriters, hats. Uh, there is literally a museum for for absolutely everything. And it, I don't know if it's if it's a British thing or not. But anyway, I'm glad that we a bit of, or a peculiarly British thing. But I'm glad that we um we managed to to uh, uh, celebrate some of them uh, last week. Libby Burris and Rachel Sylvester there, and of course you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, the economics of the Tory leadership contest. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. CCHQ, Chorley Campaign Headquarters. Risha, you have raised taxes to the highest level in 70 years. That is not going to drive economic growth. You raised national insurance, even though people like me opposed it in Cabinet at the time. 
Well, all I'd say, because we're hearing a lot about promises, we've actually got to the point, and we should just reflect on this as a Conservative party, where even Keir Starmer is attacking leadership candidates for peddling the fantasy economics of unfunded promises. If, if we're not for sound money, what is the point in the Conservative party? It's the most Conservative, it's Conservative values, and that's what I stand for. Yeah, there was quite the ding-dong on that uh, debate last night. So in today's CCHQ, Charlie's campaign headquarters, we're going to take a look at the economics of the Tory leadership contest and uh, see uh, whether or not, frankly, their uh, figures add up. So far in CCHQ last week, we learned about uh, the remaining candidates, the people who know them best. We've got campaign tips from Andrew Lebson, who's been there and done that, and is now running the campaign of Penny Morton. And... Uh, we looked at uh, how to prepare for TV debates, uh, which they won't need to listen to now because uh, Sky have just cancelled theirs. Uh, but yeah, now let's take a look at, in a bit more detail at the economics of all of this. Uh, let's take a listen to what happened when uh, Rishi Sunak, Liz Truss, Kemi Badenoch, uh, Penny Morton and Tom Tugendhat each set out their stalls on the economy. What I would do immediately is reverse the national insurance rise. I would make sure we're not raising corporation tax and I would have a temporary relief on the energy levy to cut people's fuel bills. And what I would do is unle unleash a bold plan to reform our economy, get growth growing, because we cannot get growth going whilst we're raising taxes. I've already set out plans to cut tax, which is why I didn't vote for the national insurance rise. And I've already set out plans to cut the fuel duty. The essential thing for all of us now is to set out an agenda that will see us able to deliver a growing economy into 2024. Although I've not set out massive tax plans in this contest, that's the wrong thing to do, I have introduced some very targeted support to help struggling families. Uh, for example, halving VAT on fuel at the pump uh, and also looking to raise uh, personal taxation thresholds in line with inflation. It's incredibly important we do that. We've been taking Thank too you. much money into the exchequer off the back of inflation. What I want to do is to cut fuel duty. It'll affect many people and it will make an immediate difference. But we need to look at why the cost of living is rising. And inflation is the problem. So tackling inflation will be one of the first things I do in an emergency budget. My number one economic priority will be tackling inflation and not making it worse. Because inflation is the enemy that makes everybody poorer. It erodes savings, reduces living standards and raises mortgage rates. And if we don't get a grip of inflation now, it will cost families more in the long run. So I will deliver tax cuts, but I'll do so responsibly. But I'll also get the economy growing, seizing the opportunities of Brexit to make sure that this is the best country in the world to invest and innovate. And if we can get that right, then we can all look forward to a brighter future. So that was the uh, main candidates setting out their quite different at times economic uh, stalls. And a moment we'll hear from the former Conservative Chancellor, Norman Lamont. Uh, to get his take on it all. But first, I'm joined by Oliver Wright, the Times' policy editor. Morning, Ollie. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. We've also got Gemma Tetler, the Chief Economist at the Institute for Government. Hi, Gemma. Hello. Uh, good to have you with us. Um, let's just pick through what they each had to say uh, and then we'll uh, we'll try to work out where the differences are and, um, uh, and whether or not what they're saying is necessarily... I don't know. Accurate, true. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that. Uh, well, let's go one. Let's go around then, uh, one by one, starting with. I'm Rishi Sunak. I'm standing to be your next prime minister because Britain's potential is limitless, and I'm the best person to lead us into the future. 
<laughs> yeah, um, it was a bit like a quiz show. Um, the, <laughs> the interesting thing I thought last night, Ollie, was Rishi Sunak trying to um, throw the allegation that he is a socialist chancellor back at his opponents. He went really hard on this. Uh, yeah. last night saying that it was socialism to promise things that you can't afford to pay so that even Keir Starmer wasn't supporting uh, the, the sort of uh, fantasy economics of his rivals and said that I mean, at one point I think he accused Penny Morton of going further than Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> yes he did he did um, I mean this is the absolutely you know central dividing line in the campaign and you know as it were on one side you have got Rishi Sunak and to a lesser extent um, Kemi Badenoch, who was saying, look, you know, inflation is the most important thing. The economic situation isn't good. Uh, we would be mad to go ahead with a program of tax cutting when we don't know what's going to happen to inflation over you know, the next few months. Um, you know, we, yes, we are in favour of tax cutting, but not now. And then on the other hand, you've really got to a greater or a lesser extent all the other candidates who say, you know, Unless you cut tax, you're never going to supercharge growth. Um, and unless you get growth, you're never going to you know, make the economy stronger. So you've got these sort of two you know, very, very different philosophical arguments going on about the economy. Um, where would you put, um, uh, Gemma, looking at the, the so Rishi Sunak's position, I suppose, is a sort of treasury orthodoxy uh, one uh, of you don't spend what you haven't got. But then he has spent an awful lot. Uh, and so, um, uh, you, you know, he's been accused of of, uh, of the socialist for, for, you know, but then I suppose he gave lots of money out, you know, to people for the uh, furlough scheme and that sort of thing. What was your assessment of Rishi Sunak's economic position? So, I mean, firstly, I think the, the candidates are right in their various ways to point to sluggish economic growth and high inflation as being the big economic challenges for the UK at the moment. Um, I think it's important when thinking about can you afford to spend money on things to distinguish between short term support, which is what help during the pandemic was, which was a big temporary injection of government support to help the economy through what was expected to be a purely temporary event um, and then having that debt and paying it off over some time versus permanently higher levels of borrowing. Um, and when thinking about what the candidates are pledging in terms of tax cuts in this leadership campaign, what they are talking about is permanent reductions in taxes. Um, and I think we've heard less about the flip side of that, which is that if you want to tax less, that's absolutely fine, um, but it does mean a smaller state. And so you would need to think about what you want to spend less on on the other side of the ledger. Um, Rishi Sunak has been emphasizing more of that, saying, that um, he isn't in a position to promise tax cuts yet, although obviously he had already legislated for a future cut in income tax. Uh, but some people will be shouting at the radio right now, Gemma, saying, oh, but tax cuts pay for themselves. If you reduce tax, people have more money in their pockets and they go out and spend tax. And then that means you end up uh, bringing in more, uh, more money in tax revenue. Is there such a thing as a self funded funding tax cut in theory that's possible but actually there is no evidence that any part of the uk tax system is currently at a point where cutting the rates would actually generate you more revenue cutting some of the rates may boost economic activity a bit but it's not going to pay for itself so any tax cut would need to uh, be accompanied by a reduction in the size of the state also it's worth 
saying that whilst in theory lower taxes promote stronger economic growth, there's very little evidence to suggest that actually what's holding back UK growth at the moment is simply a high level of the tax burden. Much more important is to think about the structure of the UK tax system. Are there ways that we could design tax better to raise the same amount of money but in a less distortionary, less economically damaging way? And also a whole range of other policy areas that affect how much businesses want to invest and create activity in the UK that the candidates really ought to be thinking about, not just this headline tax question. Uh, so that was uh, Wishy Sunak then. Let's move on to the next candidate. I'm Liz Truss. I want to unleash Britain's potential. I've shown I can deliver as Foreign Secretary. I'm now ready to lead as your Prime Minister. And there we are, unleash Britain's potential. In part, Ollie, uh, she wants to do that by reversing the rise in national insurance. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. £13 billion. She went quite hard, Liz Truss, on telling Rishi Sunak she opposed this in cabinet, which I think is up for some debate. Yes. Um, she was very clear that she thought it was a bad idea, as indeed um, were other candidates, Tom Tudenhart, saying he voted against it. But it's not just national insurance she wants to do. She also wants to um, reverse the planned increase in corporation tax. Um, and if you look at it, in total, her her sort of tax pledges amount to um, around £30 billion, which is, perhaps not uncoincidentally, um, the amount of money that Rishi Sunak has put aside as sort of, as it were, headroom, um, in case the economic situation gets worse. So um, Truss and indeed most of the other candidates are spending Rishi Sunak's economic headroom. So that's how they're getting around this argument. Well, you know, if you cut taxes, you'll have to cut spending. They say, no, 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 he's got this, um, he's got this headroom, which we're just going to spend. Now, part of the point of Sunak's headroom was so that he could offer tax cuts closer to the election, which all the Tory candidates seem to be cutting right now. Um, but also, you know, it is reasonable um, economic management to say we don't quite know what is going to happen to the economy, we don't know what's going to happen to inflation therefore, you know, in our plans we do need a bit of a safety net and this is um, what that safety net is and um, some economists think that actually 30 billion is not an awful amount of headroom and they should have more uh, um, One of the things I thought, and I, I wonder whether it's, uh, it's just because it's a bit complicated uh, Gemma, but uh, Rishi Sunak when Liz Truss was there sort of saying, well I would reverse the national insurance rate Rishi Sunak had this sort of slightly weird thing earlier in the year where he, he vowed to press ahead specifically with the national insurance rate rise, which uh, um, goes directly to paying for, for, the, for the NHS and social care. But then he did lots of other things to sort of offset it, didn't he, on, on national insurance and income tax. So um, the, the sort of overall net picture is, is actually more complicated than some of them. Actually, the, probably the picture that, that Liz Truss is talking about. That's right. So Sunak, in his time as Chancellor, has raised the rate of national insurance, but also increased the point at which you start paying it. That was a deliberate distributive choice in the spring statement back in March. So raising the rate uh, tends to mean that you're paying more tax the more you earn, um, whereas raising the point at which you start paying national insurance was a tax cut, but particularly focused uh, on lower uh, it was, it was a more, more progressive tax cut than it would have been just to reverse the planning. <coughs> so that was a distributive choice at a time um, when there was discussion about rising costs of living, which were hitting lower earners more than higher earners. OK, let's just waste through the, uh, the economic policies of some of the other candidates then. Up next.
I'm Kemi Badenock. I'm the candidate who will tell you the truth. I'm running because things need to change and I will make our country better. Um, Ollie, in terms of the politics, she's actually not that far, it seems to me anyway, from uh, Rishi Sunak. She's not promising massive tax cuts. I think she said she'd do something on, on fuel duty. Yes, she did. Um, she, that's the one sort of signature policy. She says she would um, cut, cut the rate of fuel duty. But on everything else, she's saying, look, it will be irresponsible uh, right now to lay out um, what um, her economic plans are. The one difference between her and Sunak is she's very explicit that she wants a smaller state. Um, Sunak is not explicit about that. So she's saying, I am a low-tax, small-state conservative, but I'm just not going to tell you exactly how we're going to get there. Um, why not? Right, let's uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll rattle through. Uh, up next, after Kebby Badenoch, it's... I'm Tom Tugendhat. We know that things have been difficult and we need a clean start. We're facing problems abroad and at home. It's time for a change. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to lead. Uh, uh, Gemma, one of the things that Tom Tugendhat talked a lot about was cutting fuel duty. But we've seen, I mean, Rishi Sunak did that, what was it, 5p he took off earlier in the year? Didn't seem to have any impact at all on the prices that people are actually paying at the pumps. Uh, fuel duty has become a sort of totemic policy area, but not absolutely clear it's the best way of helping people, is it? It, I mean, obviously, what happens at the pump price depends not only on what the tax is, but also what the price of the petrol is in the mm. global market. And that's been going up at the same time, which that's why people don't see the benefit of that 5p fuel duty cut. Um, but sort of bigger picture on fuel duty is firstly that it tends to benefit better off households because those are the ones who tend to drive their cars more and people with more larger gas guzzling cars tend to be uh, those who are better off. So it's not terribly well targeted at helping those who are perhaps feeling most of the crunch from the uh, cost of living and inflation increase. Also, uh, there's a question which has come up in some of the commentary on this about how any cut in fuel duty is consistent with the government's currently stated longer term plan of getting to net zero, because higher fuel prices do encourage people to adopt electric vehicles and try and cut down on their fossil fuel emissions. And that is something that if we want to get to net zero, the government needs to encourage people to be doing. And so cutting fuel duties or VAT on fuel goes in exactly the opposite direction. Direction. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. OK, uh, finally, then complete, let's complete the lineup. I'm Penny Mordant. My life has been about service. I'm here to make the case why I should be your next prime minister. Um, she's committed to halving VAT on uh, petrol and diesel. She wants to raise the basic and middle earners tax thresholds in line with inflation, which costs uh, billions uh, more. Uh, I also felt, Ollie, that sometimes Penny Morton would sort of dismiss it. She, she either dismisses everything as like viewers will not understand this. It's all a bit complicated. <laughs> Or she, while simultaneously disappearing into her, into the weeds, she's got some very you know, um, you know she she gets starts getting sort of tied up in thresholds or very specific allowances or you know business simplifying taxes or whatever it might be. I'm not sure of, of all of her her success over the past couple of weeks. I'm not sure the economy is where Penny Morden's at. No, I, I think I think I agree with you. And her sort of her, her sort of pitch around tax simplification, um, you're right, wasn't simple. Um, I certainly didn't follow it entirely. Um, and you know, she's she's in some ways she's right about tax thresholds, saying that they should rise in line with inflation because at the moment they're frozen. And it's really the, these things. Lots of people actually don't kind of quite understand it because it's it is quite complicated. But you know, effectively, it's a stealth tax. 
um, because if your money is worth less and you're getting taxed at the same rate, you're paying more. Um, and so she's she's not wrong about that. But the one thing that Sunak really got her on was this idea that she said she would end his rule, which says the government wouldn't borrow for day-to-day spending. And that's where you know Sunak massively went in on the attack, saying effectively, you know, not even Jeremy Corbyn did that. And she didn't really have a particularly good comeback to that, I thought. Yeah, no, I was uh, just finally, Gemma, who, who do you think has has laid out the most coherent economic plan? I have to say, I, I've been struck by the fact that the debate is focused so heavily on what is or is not being pledged on taxes. As I said earlier on, I think the, the answer to boosting UK economic growth prospects, which is a real challenge for whoever takes on uh, the role of prime minister, is much broader than taxes. Um, Sunak had pledged a, a review of taxes to report in the autumn budget. And just focusing on that is too narrow a focus. There's lots else that affect the performance of the economy. So I've been a bit struck from all of them, to be honest, with how narrow the debate so far has been. Uh, well, yeah, um, it's uh, it's good to speak to you, get your, your assessment of it. Now, that's Gemma Tetlow, the Chief Economist at the Institute for Government. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, Oliver White, the Times' policy editor. Uh, let's now speak to Lord Lamont. Norman Lamont was Chancellor under John Major, who joins me now. Uh, morning, Norman. Morning. What have you made of the tenor of this debate? Uh, Gemma Tetlow there was just saying that she thought it'd been very narrowly focused on who could cut the most tax rather than broader questions about... Uh, addressing the weaknesses in the economy? Well, I think that's a fair comment. Uh, I've been struck by the unanimity among so many Conservative MPs that what they want is tax cuts and they want it now. And I think they haven't really thought about it very carefully. They think it's simpler. Uh, They think it's easy. There is this ridiculously widespread belief that tax cuts pay for themselves uh, which is not the case. Uh, if tax cuts paid for themselves, presumably tax rates would all be at 1%. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And poor old Rishi Sunak has been a bit on, I think he's coped very well, on the defensive because of this and all the attacks on him. I mean, you can't have tax cuts without controlling expenditure. And expenditure has rocketed up largely because of COVID, though there have been some other increases as well that are debatable. But what has struck me is that the very people who in Cabinet were clamouring for increases in their departmental spending now talk about the state being too large. When we talk about the state, we're not talking about some security apparatus. We're talking about health, education, transport. That's what the state means. And... uh, there have been very generous increases there, but none of the cabinet ministers now criticising Rishi Sunak complained that public expenditure was too high. And of course, I fear that uh, the prime minister, for all his great qualities, is not really very keen on controlling public spending and talks all the time about cakeism and not having a return to austerity. And that's why last year we had a big increase in public spending on top of the COVID ex- expenditure. And a chancellor can't do anything about that if he doesn't have the backing of the prime minister to control spending. And, you know, unpopular as the national insurance increase is, I think the reason that Rishi Sunak did that was to warn MPs and the prime minister that if there were further increases in spending, they had to be paid for. Um, do you think that this is just people sort of electioneering, making promises that actually, I mean, some of them are pretty, we'll be pretty sure they're not actually going to have to 
uh, fulfil because they're not going to win? Or do you think this is going to cause a longer term problem for the Conservative Party? That, uh, you know, in Rishi Sunak's own words, you've got candidates setting out positions that are even more extreme economically than anything that Jeremy Corbyn put forward. Well, I think it would be a problem if one of the candidates making these extravagant promises becomes prime minister. For example, Liz Truss, who I think performed well in other respects, but she wants to abolish the national insurance increase. How is she going to pay for social care? Social care is a big problem. And Boris Johnson wanted to tackle it, all credit to him. But Rishi Sunak said, OK, if you want to tackle it, it must be paid for. How is she going to pay for it? She wanted to abolish the green levy as well. But what does that mean? Who's going to pay for the renewables? Is that just going to be put onto general taxation? These are mysteries. Um, and there's been a lot of uh, arguing over the legacy of, uh, of <coughs> Margaret Thatcher and saying, well, that, you know, cutting time, the heir to Thatcher, I'll cut taxes, that's get Britain's economy booming. You were a Treasury Minister under, under Margaret Thatcher. Uh, are they using her name in in vain? Are they, are they are they wrong to to claim that putting forward these these unfunded tax cuts is, is a as a Thatcherite thing to do? I think they're totally wrong. Um, from seventy nine to eighty one, the budgets under Mrs Thatcher actually, in net terms, put up taxes. It's true that in nineteen seventy nine she reduced the top rate of tax and the marginal rate of income tax. But at the same time, VAT was put up, excise duties were put up, there were extra taxes on oil companies, and you had the freezing of tax thresholds, exactly as now, but at a time when inflation was 15%, so that made it much more, uh, much, much harder on people. And Mrs. Thatcher always used to say, Getting rid of the deficit comes first. Borrowing is not what we want. It's just a burden for future generations. And actually, the truth is that because there was so much emphasis on uh, curbing the deficit, at the end of Mrs. Thatcher's period in office, the tax burden was more or less the same as it was when she first came to office. And so how, what, what will happen? I know you're backing, uh, backing Rishi Sunak. What will happen to the Conservative Party and the country if he doesn't win and one of the others, having made all these, these promises, does become Prime Minister? Well, I think uh, if you don't face reality, reality faces you. And people seem to think that we can get away with an increase in borrowing. Maybe we can, but look what's happening to Italy. People are getting very nervous at the moment about the Italian economy because of its high level of indebtedness. Um, some of the candidates referred to Japan, but Japan has a much higher level of borrowing than we do, but it's been in the doldrums for decades. Uh, in my view, uh, Rishi Sunak was quite right to say more borrowing is the socialist answer, not the conservative one. Norman Lamont, Lord Lamont, really good to speak to you today. Thanks so much for, for joining us uh, here on Times Radio. That's uh, Lord Lamont, the Chancellor, of course, under John Major. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.